Hi, Earthlings, and welcome to another episode of the Mother Earth Heroes podcast. This is the podcast where we speak with inspiring people, designing companies, products, and systems, making a better world. We're looking at how they ideated, prototyped, and test their concepts and the impact that they're having. Have you ever thought about just giving it all up and just doing something completely different? You know, something just a lot slower. You know, I think like being a farmer, you know, planting seeds, nurturing them, watching them grow, seeing your work. Sometimes I think that could be the way forward. You know, that could be something really attractive. However, not really prepared to go and leave the city right now. But what if I told you you could buy a farm and it would cost you $140,000. You could set it up in your neighborhood and all you needed was a couple of hours each week and 60 square meters and a connection to water and electricity. Kind of sounds crazy, sounds too good to be true. But this is exactly what Freight Farm is. It's like a, a two and a half acre farm inside a shipping container. A vertical farm that's connected to a, like a global network of farms and communities helping to optimize yields and efficiency from the systems. It sounds pretty amazing. And today on the show, we are speaking with James Woolard, their chief marketing officer. And James is also pretty remarkable. He has been a senior global marketing director at Reebok before moving into AgTech. And that's what we're going to be talking about. We're talking about his move from a multinational to a smaller company and one that's driven with you know, mission and vision, the challenges of scaling up once your company is no longer a startup, but more of a, a grow up, and how the community pivoted in COVID to generate new business models. And of course, much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with James Willard from Freight Farm. So, very excited to have um, James today with us on the podcast. And James, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, yeah, what you're doing there at, uh, at Freight Farm? Okay, thank you, Mark. Great to be on here. Um, very quickly, my background, obviously, I'm British, you can tell from the accent. I'm born and bred in London. I first 20 years of my career is quite classical training in marketing. So I started with L'Oreal, then Virgin, and then 15 years at Reebok, part of the Adidas group. So that's really the bulk of my career in sports, which was twofold. Ended up running the business for the North Europe which is the UK, Netherlands, and Scandinavia. So amazing time, great people, um, a lot of fun, very dynamic, learn a lot, you know, really building brand and business. And then five years ago, I nearly six in August, came across to Boston with Reebok, our global headquarters, working on the running business unit and then the style business unit, leading those respective marketing teams. And then you know, last year, really a big pivot a huge pivot for me um, in terms of moving industries and wanting, a, really wanting a new challenge and really wanting to be part of building something a little, I wouldn't say smaller, but going in definitely somewhere where I could make an impact and help grow. And I landed at Freight Farms, which was an, truly was a, a unique and amazing experience and genuinely driven by the people meeting the founder, John, who'd had this crazy idea to put a hydroponic farm in a freight container, like high energy, you know, team of 40, 45 people, just had an investment. Um, I wasn't searching for ag tech 
as such. I didn't really know what ag tech was, but um, I was definitely looking for sustainability, for technology, for somewhere where I could have an impact and then what we were doing would have an impact in a very tangible way. And that really is my my job at Freight Farms as the chief marketing officer is to scale something that really matters. We put a hydroponic farm within a freight container, which means that that farm can go anywhere in the world. 40 foot container containing a two and a half acre farm. And that really is the key that that offers people access to fresh local hydroponic produce. It offers people access where there are food deserts or food security issues. And that really is is the crux of the container farming um, proposition of which we're the pioneers and leaders. So very simply, I have to scale this. You know, it's something that is a true solution to a global and local problem, but we haven't got it out there enough yet. And there's not enough awareness and adoption and my job is to explain it, to drive that awareness, to increase that adoption and, and basically apply, you know, all of the things I was fortunate enough to learn and experience on the, the bigger brands, bigger companies, so to speak, and, and use that experience to try and accelerate our mission and journey on freight farms. Excellent. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to, I'd just love to go back to one thing. There's a couple, a couple of things there that I heard, which I thought was interesting was, First of all, why why was there this shift towards like sustainability? Because I mean, you had a really successful career there. I mean, you really could have carried on going, no doubt. But you know, ag tech is is completely out out of that wasn't on the radar. No, no, it wasn't. So, so much why, on but the sustainability radar. was. Uh, yeah, and I've got to be careful. I I wrote a piece the other day of of you know it's the buzzword. So it wasn't as sort of. Yeah, I'm, I'm very conscious that it is a buzzword. It is what you're supposed to be saying. So I think it was it was perhaps more a company that was truly mission driven and purpose driven, um, where that was real. So you know, I, if you some of my mentors when I was at Reebok, I, I worked very closely with Spartan and Spartan Race and the founder Joe Desena, who's He's a tremendous amazing, guy, yeah. amazing guy. And what you get there is the energy and authenticity of a mission-driven, purpose-driven founder where there's a true North Star, you know, and, you know, obviously naturally those sorts of things exist within sports and fitness and the technology, you know, the whoops of the world, they're all out there. Um, But really more important for me was the purpose and the mission. And so when I met John, when I met the team, it was kind of, well, this is, this is real. And this is authentic and it's a real problem and the tech and the innovation is being used in a very tangible way. So I quickly got from ag tech, which I was, what the hell is ag tech? Look that up to, well, no, it's food and it's access and it's technology and it's innovation being used in the right. And then that's, you know, that is so much broader and so relevant and it just felt, um, Honestly, just felt right from the get-go. Let's just move in. So, so John had must have had a pretty amazing conversation to convince you to to step away from a very secure, I'd imagine, position to sort of an exciting new role. I mean, yeah, no, and I was like, no, I, you know, I was, I was leaving Reebok, so it was, okay. you know, I, I wanted to find this opportunity. It was, I, I hate to say that, and I'm not retro making this up. It was, um, you know, it was so smooth. 
So in terms of meeting John, meeting the team, and and maybe this is a little bit more experience in life, getting a little older, but your head and your gut working quite quickly together and it feeling right. And I think when you're going to, it's the first time I'm ever, I've ever gone into a smaller company, into a startup. And I had spoken to a lot of you know, my mentors and friends about it. And number one is you got to click with the founder owner because otherwise it's a very short relationship. And I clicked with John and, I, and then when I met the CEO, Rick, you know, it clicked. And I think you, the beauty of startup is you're not going through the layers of corporate life. So when you click with a couple of the key people and then the culture feels right and then you can kind of um rationalize maybe more professionally the opportunity the runway you can get there very quickly of well what have i got to lose uh, so how does it actually feel because i mean freight farm is now 10 years old so I, I don't know what point we say it's no longer a startup but it's still quite small agile i'd imagine but how does it how does that feel like i mean so you've already described the relationships are close, but it it feel I mean, I think of the moment the phrase is a grow up. Um, we wouldn't see ourselves as startup now, post the Series B funding, but the mentality and the authenticity and the culture and the scrappiness and the passion and the you know, these are all the traits of startup that you want to keep for myself and for Rick Van Zura, who's the CEO. We've both come in with. More, perhaps more traditional backgrounds, corporate backgrounds. And the key is to take all of the essence and the culture and the personality and traits of what made freight farms, what got everybody there, and then you know, apply some of our you know, non-startup, shall we say, or bigger company um, experience processes without killing that spirit in any way. Yeah, because you, you've got, it sounds like you've got this wonderful mission that you bought into, and it's then trying, as you say, to grow it without killing it. And um, what are the challenges there? Because uh, once you get funding on board, things shift. Yeah, and some of the big challenges are actually the same as I had on Reebok, which is you need to grow authentically. So, you know, the pressure to grow means that you can make decisions that aren't necessarily the core of your brand or the core of your customer. And you're trying to grow too quickly. And you can only grow if your customer is successful, if your customer is happy. And obviously, with funding comes you know, a, a greater expectation of accelerated growth. I think it's quite reasonably easy for us to authentically grow because we're still small and the problem is so global. Um, I think some of the challenges we face are it's still a big investment for the customer. It's still a $140,000 product. And we're still a reasonably young industry or, or unknown. So when people are looking for financing, when people are looking to build their business, there's a huge education piece that has to go on with some of the back end stakeholders. That's a big part of my job and our job is really to explain the long term financial, commercial sustainability of these businesses. And and with that, we are working with you know smaller business holders rather than mega partnerships. It would obviously be um, beneficial to us and it's part of our plans to have some bigger customers with a bigger network, which would allow us to have one point of contact. But when you're looking to scale our solution by, by its very nature, 
is a lot of individual deals because we need to put a lot of individual containers around the world. So we're a small global company. And that's also one of the things that I've been talking to, you know, I'm talking to companies who are in this space. How is it when you are, I suppose, what are the ethics of, of trying to scale? And you say you're trying to keep with a mission. You're trying mm. to do the right decisions, stay true to your values. But at the same time, there is a certain element from venture capital or from your investors of an expectation. Is it possible to do the two, the same things? I guess it depends on the term sheet. but Yeah, no, it is. And, uh, and, and one of the big learnings for me coming in is I think sometimes, you know, investors, venture capital, it the perception is wrong, in my opinion. And not just because I have to say that, because they're my investors, that they're not like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, you know, demanding all the numbers. They want you to build the best possible healthy business mm. that, that is built on the right foundations. And every that's in everybody's interest. If we're not returning, you know, the investment for every stakeholder in the business, from the customer through mm. to the investor, then this won't work. Yes, there's a pressure to grow, but I think one of the, the things we don't struggle with is I don't have to spin the product. I don't okay. have to spin that this is a good solution. You know, no. the, the the core proposition is is, in my opinion, so real and authentic. What I have to really work on and we have to really work on is help explain to people, help support people after they have the it's not a one and done that you just you buy it and then we go away. It is a lot of effort and hard work on a lot of individuals to support them in building their business and running their farms. And that's where the authenticity, I'd say, comes in just the amount of work that you have to do in order to support all of your customers. And you have to stay true to that. You can't walk away from them. So let's let's look a little bit more at the actual business. So uh, for the business model, are you in the business of selling farms, technologies, or building communities? I mean, all three. So our mission is to create the global infrastructure to revolutionize access to food. That really has three parts, the unit, the physical container, um, the technology that powers it, which is farmhand, is our operating technology, which allows you to monitor, pre-program. It's how all the farms are connected across the world, which gives us the data. It allows us to then inform individuals of the best performances, you know, the best recipes. And then it's the community. It is the community, the peer recommendation, the peer support, the community learning. They are the three pillars. Um, and obviously, we can scale. We have roadmaps to scale the product. You can. We are looking at other forms of product that could come out on top of what we're currently doing. We can scale the technology. The technology can go further than just operating our farms. And it's all obviously based on scaling the community and having the community as advocates of what we do. So quite, yeah, so we've got the sort of three pillars that we're trying to build up in unison. Yes. Um, and it, for me, it, it sounds, I mean, forgive me if I'm wrong, but mm. 140,000 for a farm, that's a steal. I mean, I can have a farm for 140,000? <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's try and pop, I can't even buy a piece of land. I mean, how, how big is that piece of land at the equivalent of growing area? Two and a half acres. See, two and a half acres, 140,000 in, you know, that's not bad. I've still got to put a container on a piece of land, though. How big is that? You do. So it's a 40-foot container. 
So, so I, I still need to find myself 40 foot somewhere in Berlin to put my container for exactly, my, for my exactly. farm. That is, that, is your, that is your one issue. But yeah, yeah. Obviously, it's so modular that there are lots of spots in urban cities um, where you can fit it in because it's a box. So in London, we, you know, in London, there are, um, you find a corner of a car park that isn't fully used. You know, a lot of people using dark kitchens during COVID and even before COVID in terms of servicing meals. There are, there are nooks and crannies in every city where actually, you know, a freight con- the beauty of a freight container is it's been designed to move and live somewhere and often fit nicely into yeah, a harbor or a distribution center, but, and they're pretty robust. So as long as you've got the 40 foot and you've got the ability to um, hook it up to electricity and, and the water supply, you are good to go. So, you know, it's easier to install and operate than people think. Okay, so, so there's a couple of issues there. I mean, so I've, I've managed to get my, my, my 40 foot somewhere in the center of Berlin. And how, uh, and pardon the pun, but how does it stack up my container unit compared to, say, a normal farm? I've got two and a half acres out in Brandenburg, and I've got this one here. I know there's going to be savings on some stuff, but there's going to be costs on others. What? How do you measure the KPIs to compare? I mean, they're not obviously very easy to compare, but there are elements, I guess. Yeah, how we measure is um, one: the yield is mm-hmm. the key, is the yeah. is the output. So you know you can be growing a thousand heads a week within our container of lettuce, um, and that's where you know from a when we compare with two and a half acres, you know it's it's similar yields um, in terms of the actual output. But a, key, a couple of key things. Um, are you know we're using because of the closed loop hydroponic system, which is moving water around. We're using ninety five percent less water than in traditional agriculture. You have no herbicides or pesticides. You, the nutrition through hydroponics is being put into the plants directly. So there's a you know the richness of the nutrients and therefore the end product you know tastes better ultimately it's fresher it's hyper local and you're ne- probably nearer the point of delivery than if you're on a farm where things have to travel so that's you know it's the hyper local fresh produce at the same yield rates with with using far less water without the pesticides and herbicides the one thing that you know is it's a challenge but you know is is a reality in container farming is electricity Exactly. We we had to get there. We had to get there. It was going to be something that's going to be the cost. Um, So how much does that actually work out roughly? That's probably going to, like you're going to roughly five or $6,000 a year. It's going to be your electricity bill for running the container. Not an insignificant cost. We improve the efficiencies of the, of the, in terms of the LEDs that we use within the farms. So it is a, one, it's a cost that's always coming down year on year and we'd be very we are very confident in knowing that especially with our technology built it you know our energy costs do come down year on year there's also partnerships that we've really started and this is only in the US but we launched a, a large partnership with Arcadia who's a clean energy supplier and that obviously allows you to offset the energy with clean energy and be buying the RECs to give you the clean energy. And that's a key partnership that we offer to all of our customers now within the US. So that radically reduces 
you know, our impact and our footprint um, through those partnerships. And they're things that we're looking to roll out um, globally. And so, say for instance, I'm, I'm sold on the idea. I'm, mm. I want my container for 140,000, 5,000 euros a year for the electricity, no problems. How does it break even then? If, if you were to sit down as the farmer and think about what your potential yield is from this container, and I don't know whether you can work it out, whether you would say, it depends obviously on location, but. Yeah, so the, the key, so one, um, it's important to be very transparent on the numbers. Mm. And so we're dealing with individual customers. So we are. It does, your revenue, you as a customer, your revenue is, is obviously the cost that you can command for your range of crops. You can grow your, your lettuces or your um, basil or your herbs um, times the unit value volume. Mm. So we, on average, and we have a business planning tool where you can specifically look at the crops you think are most relevant for where you live and would be most relevant for your customers. But we would estimate most of our customers around, you know, especially with our new greenery S, a hundred hundred to one hundred and ten thousand dollars of revenue per annum. And then you have your operating costs, which are obviously electricity, supplies, the seeds, the nutrients, another four or five thousand, and then your labor cost. Mm. And that is one where you, know, you have to factor that in. It could be that you're running it yourself, but you have to run it. And therefore, you know, how much do you really want to pay yourself? But you have to plan it as if you're paying yourself truly you need to live $20 an hour. You know, it's going to take 10 or 15 hours a week to operate. So all in, we would sort of recommend planning $20,000, $25,000 of operating costs a year Mm. against $100,000, $110,000 of revenue. Yeah. I think... So the break-even's fairly fairly soon then for a farm. I mean, two years. Capital investment, and I'm up and running in two years. I'm, I'm hopefully, I'm back in, back in black. Yeah, you so, are. I, I think the a big part of what we are doing, or, or have always done, but is trying to be very clear on the business cases because that old, as I said, we need successful customers, and what what um, I think, you know, I've certainly learned, and we try and really help people educate is operating the farm. It's, it's incredibly important to learn that, but we're here to support. We have amazing technology. We have an operating system, and it's actually easier than maybe people think. Where you really need to put the work and effort is in building your customer base yeah. because those revenue numbers are, are driven by you having restaurants, you know, potential stores, your own network of maybe online or providing subscriptions to people or CSAs. And that's really where the successful businesses are all based on very successful customer bases. And that's a lot of the work and effort. One of the interesting things just right now, you just mentioned that, was also to do with the timing. The timing of your mm. arrival was June 2000, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 2020, the middle of COVID. So uh, probably a more challenging time couldn't be, couldn't be planned. But again, a very challenging time for your customers if, for instance, their, their, their business model was based on restaurants. Um, but how has that affected you, I suppose, starting, your, starting into the company, but also the, the community? So let's let's start with the community. I think he's so impressed by the community because people pivot and people have, you know, we have so many customers that really are 
you know, true entrepreneurs care about this business and and want to work it. And they found other ways beyond restaurants. I mean, obviously still servicing a takeout business, they're still operating restaurants, but not at the same volume. So, you know, moving to their farmers markets, moving to direct distribution to consumers was a, a big one. Um, we have a, you know, a couple of really successful customers that have built more of your traditional e-commerce subscription based um, businesses where then they're having you know, delivering to key customers who are who are spending fifty sixty dollars a week in a subscription to have all of their greens all of their their um so their salads their greens their herbs delivered to them fresh every week and that's you know you just see the resilience of the customer base for me personally I was in the office for a couple of months in the summer when we could do in Massachusetts, but really it's been like everyone in the world, getting used to working from home, getting used to speaking to everybody over Zoom, um, not having that kind of physical bonding that you'd have when you normally start in a company. So everything's digital and virtual. And then I would say macro and micro, that at a macro level, in many ways, it shines a light on supply chains issues. You would never, ever want to benefit from COVID, of course, but no doubt it has raised awareness of dependency on moving things around the world, the need to control your supply chain, the need for hyper-local solutions, etc. So in that sense, it kind of the awareness maybe is is increasing and we can help educate on the solution we have um, for some of these bigger problems. On a micro level, it's very hard for people to invest in things right now. I think we have a lot of people that really want to do this. We have a lot of customers, potential customers close and you know in a, in a sales process, and ours is quite a long sales process. You get a feel of when people genuinely want to go and they're just waiting, maybe for a bit of financing, maybe for the world to open up. I think we're all on pause a little bit, aren't we? Of And just, just give me that confidence that we're coming back. And then I think a lot of people will press go. Um, and then secondly, um, you know, we've been hit by just the global issues on freight costs both the costs of freight containers and the cost of shipping. You know, it's significant increase in cost of goods and cost of shipping. And a lot of our containers are coming from Shanghai and the spot rates are you know, going through the roof. Everybody's um, this demand for consumer goods, which has then increased all of the shipping rates, you know, and our price points, these are, you know, these are really big hits. On the, on the cost of operations of the business that are, are a direct result of the world we're living in at the moment with COVID. And that's interesting because you said, you know, we've got a lot of people that are potentially thinking of moving forward. So uh, is there such a thing as a typical user or a typical customer? Uh, and if they are, who are they? I mean, I do, it's unfair they aren't typical. I think they're, you mean, they're obviously personas and we can segment. I think the big one is attitude. So I think that attitudinally, all of our customers do buy into the mission. They also well, every customer I've interacted with or seen wants to help their local community and wants to provide you know, fresh local produce. They want to run a business. They need to make profit and money from that business. But I wouldn't say it's the number one driver in the same way as, you know, when I sold to 
Foot Locker or JD Sports, you know, they they definitely our customers see the bigger impact they're having and the wider impact maybe and the importance of what they're doing and buy into the concept ultimately and the community benefit. We have a lot of, or not a lot, we have what we call small business farmers or medium business farmers that really are running that community-based local business. We then have education. So we work with a number of colleges and that's really interesting where you've got people that are genuinely using this to educate a younger generation about new solutions for food and supply chain. And then we have not-for-profit, non-for-profit, or not-for-profit, non-profit, which really is obviously um, people truly giving back to the community, providing um, opportunities for, for example, you know, vets, ex-vets to work within the um, within the farm, within the ecosystem. You know, and that that just really is. You've got some, yeah, some really wonderful stories there. You've got the community models. I don't know if you could talk a little about them. I, I don't know how this works. You've got Pillsbury, the uh, United Community there, using food to fight for justice. Um, tell us a bit about that, how you can use food to fight, food to fight for justice. <laughs> well, because, um, you know, people haven't had access to, to fresh food um, in a lot of areas. You know, they're just, especially in urban areas, um, and providing that access and providing that just access is a big part of what Pillsbury are doing and and addressing, you know, serious issues of, we talk, you know, talk about democratizing access where that hyper-local fresh produce just wasn't getting to those areas and businesses weren't being financed to provide that in those areas. You know, and these are customers where food access and food deserts is symptomatic of you know, some of the, the way in which, especially in the US, um, you know, areas are just not serviced. A food desert. Yeah, that's an interesting term. And, and, and I, I don't know how long this term has actually been around. And it sounds like a terrible term because <laughs> we're not talking about some sort of desert where there's nothing you can actually find. We're talking about mm. urban areas. So yeah. how do you define it? The term is is intended to make you your your sort of ears prick and really think so how would we define it it's it's somewhere which really isn't being serviced by fresh local it's not affluent whole foods areas you know it is where food is being transported four or five hundred miles in order to get there so obviously an, an easier example somewhere like all the islands in the caribbean where all food is imported so ultimately it can't be grown on the island and that's that's the desert as such and then you have you know large parts of the US where food is is predominantly made within California or grown within California and then transported distributed to all of these areas so they are exposed to the dangers of that distribution network to the quality of the food when it's traveled that far to the reliability of that supply chain in order to give you that consistency of food. So there's still food. It's not a true desert, but yeah. it's not a it's not a reliable, consistent, controlled supply of fresh local food. Which is incredible that we're in such affluent countries, uh, say, for instance, I mean, the ones you highlight, obviously, maybe not some areas of the Caribbean, but in America and things like that, that we still struggle with healthy food and yeah. um, the benefits of that what about i mean I, there's another one you talked i think there was one about uh, the children the homeless mothers just lotus house in miami uh, 
I mean, that's incredible. So that really is, so this is where the farm is, you know, it is one, we're very fortunate that there are grants that can be given um, in local communities, which you know, of which we or Lotus in that case can be a, um, a recipient in order to purchase a freight farm. The beauty of something like Lotus House is they're then able around, you know, their shelter around providing a safe place for women. They're also then able to provide work and opportunities to actually work in the farm, run the farm, benefit from growing the produce, from seeing it used. And it's so interactive and educational and experiential, you know, and purposeful, um, both, both because it benefits the community to have a, a working business that does good, but even just mentally and physically, just you know, having that opportunity to grow things. We all know that growing in, in, in itself is quite a rewarding, relaxing activity um, I, I i read somewhere recently that the lowest job satisfaction is investment banker uh, also <laughs> the highest suicide rate along with lawyers the yeah. actual highest satisfaction of any job rate was a horticulturalist and i thought it was interesting because it, it must be that thing of of experiencing if you're outside and not in a container farm or a freight farm then it's experiencing the the seasons but as you say it's actually seeing the fruits of your labor you plant a seed you you water the seed you watch it grow you harvest there's something yeah. tangible about the work you've done and there's some benefit that other people receive from it while so many of our jobs are intangible now yet the value of them is quite great. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think it's, yeah. it's the fruits of your labor. And, mm. you know, for for any, um, you know, like myself, if you're, if you're trying to be present, if you're trying to be mindful, if you're trying to have all the good habits in life that we need to kind of work on daily, horticultural growing things is actually, has always had that. You know, it, yeah. it makes you present on something. It makes you present on seeding transplanting harvesting and then you see it so it's probably a, a very early form of being present and being mindful it's also the it's it's one of these things that we can't i mean in your case this is not particularly true but in theory with growing you you can't speed it up you know so you have to plant the seed and then you can't go right now i'm going to harvest we have to go through the process of of, of waiting which brings me to two things. So I think there's a mindful element in it, you know, mm. just the, the process of waiting. And that's the same with like a, a sustainable company. You can't just sort of go like, right, let's open it and let's get all the money as quickly as possible. You want to be in with this growth, so gradual growth. But just going back to that, how much faster can we speed up this process when we go through here? So we are accelerating the seasons. Yes, we are. We are because we are, we have a four week growing cycle. Um, so we are, we can, obviously we are influencing the natural state of plant by accelerating the amount of sunlight through LEDs, by accelerating the amount of nutrients. So you're replacing soil with nutrients through water. Um, so we are able to accelerate. I mean, it's a, it's a fine balance because you still need that four weeks and you don't want to overly accelerate. You can't go too quickly in terms of you want the right balance of intensity it's going to get the right stages of growth one one huge thing is as well as speeding things up able um, to manipulate or influence some of the coloration of of the lettuce you're able to you know give different tints 
that you would want. And you're just able to learn. This is a big thing where because you have that growing cycle of four weeks, you can work out after a number of harvests, like the ideal for this seed and this crop. You know, it's these settings over three and a half weeks or four weeks or four and a half weeks. And that's a big part of where Farmhand and our operating system both monitors and learns. And then it, it iterates in itself improving. So this is sort of a, the technology and the community themselves are feeding back into it to help constantly improve it. Exactly. And I, I think we very much, or I do, yes, we accelerate, Mark. But hmm. more importantly is the consistency of the control rather than pumping out you know, let's turn up the let's turn up the speed and and increase the yields. It's more that we can control the environment and then guarantee the consistency of the yield, fifty two weeks a year, and that's where you're going to get more produce because you're not affected by seasonality. You don't have to get it all done in three or four months. And I suppose a, a really big concern is as for lots of people now is about whether it's nutritionally same as a, a lettuce that's been grown in a field. And is it uh, considered or can it be considered organic or not really? How do those two start? That one is, is you know, organic is, um, is a debate, I think. It, there's, I think one thing really to clarify, actually, is that we are not fighting any other form of agriculture. And it isn't anti-soil. So and that was a big one when I came in and I came in from a sports brand and everybody's the opposition, like sports, you know, everybody's the opposition. And that, that isn't true here. We have a lot of farmers for which we're a complementary element, element of their existing ecosystem or they have a farm. There are areas where you can't grow with soil. So we don't see ourselves as competitive in that sense. We see as complementary and part of the overall solution. In terms of ponic, which you know, organic is still predominantly associated with soil. So what we rather than fight that, the 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 USDA, you know, the US Department of Agriculture can there's work on can it be called organic, but we don't really see that as mm. the big question. It's more defining hydroponic as, you know, the most nutritional high nutrition produce. And specifically, it's more that it's fresh because or it's been grown so close to source. So you're getting the, the actual produce two or three hours after it might have been picked. And that's where the retention of the freshness and the lack of the travel on with soil, farm with soil to supermarket is a, is a big difference. And I, I think thirdly, would, where, you know, when we started my previous experience of um, Reebok, Adidas, ultimately, whatever I say doesn't matter to the consumer because I'm the brand. So I'm always going to say that it's the best. What we're really working hard on is the advocates and the chefs and the end people that cup. Yes, this is, you know, the best tasting lettuce I've had. This has, you know, clearly it just is healthy. I can feel the nutrients, I can taste the health, I can taste the freshness. Uh, you know, and that is where we work really hard. We just had a webinar the other uh, last night with MGM Greens, which is one of our customers that have two of their own restaurants. You know, and that and that is the endorsement and the advocacy third party that I'm really looking for. Because I know that that's far important more important than me just making an ad and stating it's the best and the most fresh and the best tasting. 
I need I need the advert. I think it was interesting as well what you just said that you know this isn't going to be the winner. It's not like we're just going to have containers everywhere all around and all the farms have gone out of business. It's it's going to be for certain obviously produce it doesn't work. So we're still going to have a balance of all sorts of yes. different farming systems. It's going to be a mixture. This is just part of a solution. Um, but what is what is the big dream for Freight Farm then moving forward? Where where would they like to be? Our big dream is is to deliver our mission. So I think you know, when I say create a global infrastructure that revolutionizes local access, we really mean it. And by that, we mean more penetration of our products, reducing the barriers to entry, be that with product development roadmap, you know, where we have even a bigger range of products that work for a range of customers and situations. And obviously with scale, we can just drive, we can reduce the barriers. We can reduce the barriers. To, we can, and, and I think we're at a real point where, you know, as we do that, and as we have that wider offer, we can scale very, very quickly with this solution and truly be global at a tens of thousands of units. And then the second is really the technology and the data that okay. we really are leading in terms of having that knowledge, having that data, and then being able to use our technology within our own ecosystem, but within or it being able to be used within a number of operators around the world. Um, and then thirdly, partnering with the drum for me of having bigger partners can work with us to really scale the opportunity around the world. Part of that, that global network, be it greenhouses, be it normal farms, you know, part of the buying network as well. So that's where your big grocery partners are your your real big forward order, you know, mm. that could guarantee a mm. large amount of purchasing. You know, these mm. are these are all the ways that in a way of saying making it much easier for a lot more people to access the product and technology. I always ask this question, I don't know. You started this around about seven months ago. Um, mm. what, when you started it, what do you know now to be untrue that you didn't know before you started? <laughs> um, to be untrue? Yeah. Um, that's, is, you had an idea of that you thought initially yeah. poised. I think, I think I thought it was much more about farming um, and that you had to be passionate about farming and probably from a background in farming. And actually, that's not true. And I think the the passion needs to be for building a business, impacting on a community, being out of the farm and selling and interacting with customers. And, and the farm is actually an easier part of the process and we need to make it even easier. But it's less about the farm than I thought and more about customers, communities. And then I... I I wouldn't say this isn't, so not being a politician, this isn't untrue. What I completely underestimated was the power of the technology and, and the data. You know, I, I, I came from a business, sneaker costs 100 bucks. You sell a million of them, mm. you've got 10 million net sales. Ours, yeah. is, ours is far more um, about building that network and the software can penetrate the world very quickly. Well, that's exciting. And just like one last one. I think we're pretty much wrapping up mm. now, but... 
So knowing what you do now about food and hydroponics and food security and all those wonderful topics, how optimistic are you about the future? Because there are some predictions of extraordinary amounts of food that we'll need to produce in the coming years. How optimistic are you? I am very optimistic. I think for two for two reasons, and it actually goes back to when we're talking about our respective kids. One is, I think I really think there's a big shift this decade of this is real, and a lot of the numbers you see being thrown about are 2050 which to me, you may be more like, that's miles away. But if you think, I can remember what I was doing in 2000, pretty, like it's pretty recent. So I think there's a generation saying, we've actually got to sort this out and we can't waste all of this food. Just the same as fast fashion. Like this is just absolutely ridiculous, the amount of wastage in the world. And, and then secondly, I think the solutions are, are catching up. Cease where people know People need tech to do good and actually be focused on solutions that are good. And if you look at how rapidly tech has moved in the last 15 years, but move rapidly really to provide social media, to provide Amazon ruling the world, you know, to provide infrastructures to distribute products, sell products, know everything that we're doing, um, create massive social communities. If that speed of action applied to food access to food security to supply chains to reduction in the unnecessary i, I can i can't 100 percent visualize it but i can certainly think geez if you told me 15 years ago what amazon and twitter and facebook and tesla would i'm not sure anyone would have believed you so gives me hope that Maybe it can be applied to something that just doesn't make another 10 Californian billionaires and actually addresses a big problem. Yeah, let's hope we can just innovate on the right subjects and uh, turn those brilliant minds to the problems we've got. Thank you so much, James. It's been a great Thank conversation. You, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation with James and I thought it was amazing to see how we can use technology to enable us to have fresh produce and it doesn't matter where you are. I mean, you talked about you know, Caribbean islands or in the middle of the desert, as long as you have a, a supply, a certain amount of water and some electricity, we can have fresh produce. Um, the networking of the farms is also fascinating how we can use um, networked farms to actually improve yields and improve efficiency of the lighting, reducing the, the cost of running these systems. And I think one of the things that I really enjoyed was the, the community aspect to it. And I hear this over and over again within this food topic that we're covering at the moment, that we are really disconnected from food. We live in, uh, in cities and quite often we don't understand where the food is coming from. And this concept of food deserts where you can't even get nutritional food, it was pretty shocking. And I, I see this as a, a really powerful way of overcoming that problem. You know, having hyper local, ultra fresh food um, within your neighborhood. 
And well, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm just trying to figure out where I can actually find a bit of room to put one of these down. I mean, it would be, be absolutely fantastic. So um, again, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks to Paul Fife, our amazing podcast ed- editor. Uh, you can check him and his music out at Paul Fife. That is Paul, P-A-U-L-F-Y-F-E dot com. And I look forward to bringing you more amazing guests soon on the Mother Earth Heroes. And in the meantime, oh, don't forget to save the planet. We need to do it sooner rather than later. <laughs>